The following message is presented by Fellowship Bible Church from its weekly pulpit ministry. We offer an expositional study through entire books of the Bible, one verse, paragraph, or chapter at a time. We pray that you'll be blessed by listening in. Thanks for visiting. Proverbs 17. Proverbs 17. Better is a dry morsel with quietness than a house full of feasting with strife. A wise servant will rule over a son who causes shame and will share an inheritance among the brothers. The refining pot is for silver, and the furnace for gold, but the Lord tests the hearts. An evildoer gives heed to false lips. A liar listens eagerly to a spiteful tongue. He who mocks the poor reproaches his maker. He who is glad at calamity will not go unpunished. Children's children are the crown of old men, and the glory of children is their father. Excellent speech is not becoming to a fool, much less lying lips to a prince. A present is a precious stone in the eyes of its possessor. Whoever he turns, he pros- wherever he turns, he prospers. He who covers a transgression seeks love, but he who repeats a matter and separates friends. Rebuke is more effective for a wise man than a hundred blows on a fool. An evil man seeks only rebellion, therefore a cruel messenger will be sent against him. Let a man... Meet a bear robbed of her cubs, rather than a fool in his folly. Whoever rewards evil for good, evil will not depart in his house. The beginning of strife is like releasing water. Therefore stop contention before a quarrel starts. He who justifies the wicked and he who condemns the just, both of them are alike, both of them alike are an abomination to the Lord. Why is there in the hand of a fool the purchase price of wisdom, since he has no heart for it? A friend loveth at all times, and a brother is born for adversity. A man devoid of understanding shakes hands in a pledge and becomes surety for his friend. He who loves transgression loves strife, and he who exalts his gate seeks destruction. He who has a deceitful heart finds no good, and he who has a perverse tongue falls into evil. He who begets a scoffer does so to his sorrow, and the father of a fool has no joy. A merry heart does good like medicine, but a broken spirit dries the bones. A wicked man accepts a bribe behind the back to pervert the ways of justice. Wisdom is in the sight of him who has understanding, but the eyes of a fool are on the ends of the earth. A foolish son is a grief to his father, and bitterness to her who and bitterness to her who bore him. Also, to punish the righteous is not good, nor to strike princes for their uprightness. He who has knowledge spares his words, and a man of understanding is of a calm spirit. Even a fool is counted what is when he holds his peace. When he shuts his lips, he is considered perceptive. Proverbs 17. Okay, Jackson, thank you for that reading. Proverbs 17, a lot of wisdom there. And so we turn to our subject matter for this evening, which is under the title of self-deception. And I think this will be the last message on this, unless I go back and read some more and want to share something else about it. It can get to be a bit tedious in the uh, philosophical realm because uh, philosophers philosophers and theologians have uh, delved into this to some extent at some great length, uh, not always with satisfactory explanations, but certainly uh, there's something here 
As we said last time, the Bible, or last three times, the Bible's replete with examples of deception and self-deception that we find starting back in Genesis 3 with the serpent and Eve and then all the way into Revelation chapter 20 in which we find the devil, the serpent, that great serpent of old, deceiving the nations. So from beginning to end, the Bible's full of deception and people who kind of welcome that deception or participate willingly in it it seems have some level of self-deception as well. And then there are just those verses in Scripture that talk about self-deception. So we looked at some definitions, first of all, of what deception is, of what self-deception is. We looked at some uh, kind of illustrations of that. We saw that the idea is reasonable, even though you might stop, when you stop and think about it, you say, well, how can somebody believe X and believe that X is not true at the same time? They believe it's true and they believe it's not true. How is that? How is that possible? Don't you have to be schizophrenic or uh, blind somehow to uh, have that experience? Well, that's the reality of sin. Sin causes that blindness, which uh, means that we can't see things just exactly the way that they are. So, self-deception. The action or practice of allowing oneself to believe that a false or unvalid feeling idea or situation is true. And there's a motivational aspect behind it. We'll talk about that, a couple of illustrations this evening I'll begin with, picking up where I left off. There's got to be a motivational aspect underneath. Why is it? What's the motivation for doing this? Well, Well, we'll talk more about that. So, a person believes that something is true, but for some reason he's motivated to ignore or hide or deny that it's true. There's some motivation for that. So, he misconstrues evidence, he rationalizes, he twists the situation so that to his mind it can be plausible that it's false instead of true. Or the reverse, you know, like we said with the example of the the mother who has a son who has been caught the third time stealing lunch money out of the the kids' uh, lockers at school. It's not that the school's against the kid. It's that he's doing something and the mom is saying, no, 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 he couldn't be doing that. But we know, so we see that's a great example of, of self-deception. Somebody like the mom is motivated to think that her son is better than he is so that she doesn't have to blame herself or, or think that there's a flaw there in her son. Um, so this comes in various levels, flavors, if you will. We looked at Job 15, 1 Corinthians 3, Galatians 6. I won't go over all those again. 1 Corinthians 6.9 Do not be deceived, brothers, knowing that anybody who participates in those kind of activities that Paul lists in that sin list there are not going to inherit the kingdom of heaven. But there are tons of people, even some evangelicals, who have convinced themselves of the opposite of that. They read X and they say, no, actually not X. That's a very dangerous situation that we've tried to disabuse our own selves of over the course of the years. Uh, Galatians 6, 7, and 8 says something similar. If you think you can sow to the flesh and reap of the Spirit, hmm, you have something a little backwards. If you're going to sow to the flesh, you're going to reap of the flesh. If you want to reap from the Spirit, you have to sow spiritual things to do that. James, 1 John, talk about deception of this sort. Romans 1 is the critical passage that we spent some time, almost a whole message, looking at verses 18 to 22. 
There, remember, people know God and then they convince themselves that no, they don't know God. And this is the reality that we run into when we witness. If you've ever witnessed to anybody, which I hope you have, if you haven't, get going. Um, you, you run into this where people deny the existence of God or say they aren't sure of the existence of God when in fact the Bible declares that what is known of God is manifest in them for God has shown it to them for from the beginning of creation. Uh, God has demonstrated clearly His attributes uh, of eternal power and deity. Those things are clear and people have have ignored those. They've actually done more than ignored them. The Bible says they've suppressed them in unrighteousness. They did not then as a result honor or thank God. And and so God lets them kind of wallow in their self-deception and the Bible says God hands them over, gives them over to their own depraved minds. That's what I call wallowing in the consequences of their empty and foolish minds. Theirs is the path of self-deception and with guardrails removed, God's gracious intervention, they can go to all manner of lengths of wickedness without having it bother them whatsoever. It's a terrible thing. So, But it's still mysterious to some extent. We, we know that self-deception exists, but how is it that a person can know God but yet at the same time claim not to know Him? Um, maybe it comes somewhat in the, the definition of the word know. You know. You know God, meaning you have a sense of deity, but you don't know Him, meaning you don't personally know Him. Um, that's part of it, I think, but there's something deeper and more insidious going on. We saw last time, I think it was, the origins of self-deception. Number one, sin. We've talked about that many a time. Romans 7.11 says, sin deceived Paul by taking advantage of the circumstances, the opportunity afforded by the law. He said, it deceived me and it killed me. So since sin is within himself, uh, we can't say, but anything is that that's a self-deception, right? Um, unless you want to make sin a completely autonomous thing from our nature, which you cannot do. So sin deceives. Sin hides its own presence and becomes like an agent separate from the person, but in fact is not separate from the person at all. Um, I did comment on this. I think it's useful to uh, remind ourselves of this about self-deception. That if you're deceived from the outside, that doesn't always mean that you're the innocent party. Sometimes you can be willfully deceived. The will is in here. The deception comes from outside. You add deception plus willful together and you get a self-deception as well on top of the deception. You want to believe what you're hearing from the outside because it's convenient somehow for you, okay? All right. Uh, not only sin can be an origin of self-deception, but also the uh, progenitor of sin, Satan himself. Second Corinthians chapter 11, verse number 3. Actually, I don't recall visiting this verse last time. Maybe we did. Paul says to the Corinthians, I fear lest somehow as the serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness, so your minds may be corrupted from the simplicity that is in Christ. 
Satan is the great deceiver. He lives for lying. Hey, brother. Uh, his, his servant, the Antichrist, will have the same kind of character, Second John 1.7. And so that brings us to the Antichrist. Second Thessalonians speaks of this. Turn there, would you? Because Second uh, Thessalonians chapter 2, 8. This, this verse has always kind of bothered me, and uh, more so now, today, than perhaps ever before. This, we can kind of see out in society how this can happen. Second Thessalonians 2.8. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 and verse number 8 uh, speaks about this mystery of lawlessness. And then the lawless one will be revealed. It's talking about at the beginning of the tribulation now. Whom the Lord will consume with the breath of His mouth and destroy with the brightness of His coming. So, this one verse comprehends the entire career of the Antichrist. He will be revealed and then he will be destroyed. Now, it doesn't tell us anything about what will happen between, but that, one, that happens in verses 9 and 10 when more detail is given. The coming of the lawless one is according to the working of Satan. It's like the same kind of thing as what Satan would do because he's Satan's agent. With all power, signs, and lying Wonders are lying miracles. Okay, this is 2 Thessalonians 2 9. And, listen, verse 10, with all unrighteous deception among those who perish, because they did not receive the love of the truth that they might be saved. For that reason, or and for this reason, God will send them strong delusion, that's deception, that they should believe. The lie that they may all be condemned who did not believe in the truth but had pleasure in unrighteousness. So there's a whole bunch of stuff going on here at one time. God is going to send this delusion. In other words, He's going to do like what He did in Romans 1. He's just going to hand them over to wallow along in their own sin and their own consequence. And uh, this Antichrist is going to be playing into that and deceive those who perish. Now, how's, how is it that you can avoid this? Well, receive the love of the truth so that you would be saved and then you will be insulated to some extent from this deception, okay? But these people will not. The world and mass will be deceived. We see that today, you know? We see great deceptions floating about the globe and people buying into it in massive numbers. And it's disturbing for those of us that are righteous and have received the love of the truth. And we see people just going headlong into destruction. Very bothersome. This is the great deception surrounding the work of the Antichrist. And it's another example of a deception coming from outside, interplaying with what we have going inside. And, and you see the motivation is, Look, I don't love God if I'm an unbeliever. I don't love, I love sin. I love my pleasures and all of that. I don't want to have to be accountable to God. So when somebody comes along and gives me a plausible set of information that kind of jives with that, then I'm cool with it. It all connects together and I'm happy because now I have some deception that validates and strengthens my own viewpoint. So, 
Self-deception can come from your sin, can come from Satan, can come from the Antichrist or be influenced by the Antichrist. False information from outside, from whatever source, can also interplay with this. I'll share a couple of examples. Like I said last time, you're you're about to uh, see uh, me get myself into big trouble here tonight. Uh, You'll see why in just a moment with a couple of these illustrations that I thought of. Uh, Divisive people will deceive the hearts of those who are not critical thinkers, that is, true critical thinkers now, will deceive the hearts of those people. There's also other features that can interplay with self-deception. I mentioned a couple of them. Peer group self-reinforcement, echo chamber, uh, false consciousness, this idea of the uh, collective illusion that it causes an entire social class, I'm quoting from Bonson, to obscure the motives of its own thought from itself. Under this cloud of bad thinking, the corporate group believes things that are actually contrary to their own best interests. You know, he thinks, well, I'm going to be made prosperous and wealth and, and healthy and, and all of that, but actually the, the philosophy or the thing that he's supporting or doing or, or whatever is actually going to lead to his destruction, self-deception. Okay, we gave some illustrations. Here we go. Uh, One illustration was the events surrounding 9-11. And we saw that there are some people who have deceived themselves into thinking that this is an inside job. And we talked a little bit about that. We also looked at a theological example, the cults. And I'm going to look at a couple more uh, societal or social examples or political examples here in just a moment. But for a theological example, any of the cults would be great uh, examples, models of deception. Uh, take the uh, somewhat convincing argument by the JWs that, well, God can't be a trinity because that's too hard to understand. We can't understand that. God wouldn't give us anything we can't understand. That's kind of quoting from an old friend that I had years and years ago who was a JW. And that was just repeating the mantra that he had heard. They confidently assert this and elevate their intellect to the point where they're able to, they think, comprehend anything, even God who's incomprehensible. And so that is a great example of self-deception. They have woven together a system of theology that allows them to avoid the reality that Jesus is Lord, all caps, and they treat Him as a secondary person to God. Let's go back to Exodus chapter 21 for another Example. This is an example of abortion. Exodus 21, verse 22. Maybe you have heard this inquiry. Where does the Bible prohibit abortion? Well, the whole, the whole tenor of Scripture prohibits that hateful, wicked act. But, if you should want something more uh, precise, turn to Exodus 21, the chapter after the Ten Commandments. Those of you listening online or that will be in the future, you do know the chapter where the Ten Commandments are, right? Exodus 20, the following chapter, 21, verse 22, says this, If men fight and hurt a woman with child so that she gives birth prematurely, two cases now, yet no harm follows, He shall surely be punished accordingly as the woman's husband imposes on him, and he shall pay as the judges determine. 
Okay, so the baby's born premature. Turns out it's okay. Um, fine. There's a punishment that is determined by the judges. So that right there is serious enough. But verse 23 says, But if any harm follows, then you shall give life for life. Eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, wound for wound, stripe for stripe. That's the lex talionis, the law of retaliation and like kind. Notice the first condition. He shall give life for life. His life for the life that was lost. What life is that? The life of the baby. So God is explicitly saying 3,500 years ago that the baby that was premature, that was born, was a life. Uh, do we have to pretend that, oh, our scientific technology was not so up to date and we didn't have ultrasounds and we couldn't see this little thing in the womb in 1973 and so the court became justified thus to allow abortion in all these cases? Please, don't be stupid. Okay? It's dumb. 3,500 years ago, God made it clear that that is a life in the womb and to take it is murder and is worthy of the same punishment as murder of any other human being, whether one day old or 100 years old. Okay. So somebody says, I don't support abortion, but I am pro-choice. At one, you know, in other words, I won't, I won't do it, but I think other people should be able to do it. At one and the same time, you believe that a homo sapiens has a right to life, yet you also believe that a baby in the womb can be extinguished with no guilt, no offense, no sin, no moral wrongdoing? Question mark. How do you do that? How do you hold those two thoughts at the same time? I'm not for abortion, but I am pro-choice. I'm not... Just translate that. This is where the self-deception comes. Language... Maybe I should have a whole section of my notes on this. Language can be used to layer over a, a terrible idea to make it sound better. What does it mean, I, I don't support abortion? I don't support the killing of a living homo sapiens in its mother's womb. But I am pro-choice. What does that mean? But I think other people should be able to kill a living homo sapiens that's in the womb. Okay? That papered over illogic doesn't make it more logical. It's still illogic. It's still self-deceived. What would be the motivation for that? Think about that for a second. Some people are so cold and so calculating that they believe in these dual conflicting ideas. Yes, I said that and I meant it. People that think these dual, these opposing ideas are actually colder and more calculating than they think. They, they want to say, well, I'm innocent. I'm, 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 I'm keeping it at arm's length. It's not me, but it's them. It's okay for them. That is, that is a funny way to have a conscience, dear ones. Many people, on the other hand, actually convince themselves that a child is not, in fact, a living, a living human baby at all. And thus it is okay to remove it because removing it is not the same as killing it. They, they believe that's the case. 
it appears to me that there is self-deception involved here that helps the person to avoid having to think about the unpleasant truth that abortion is murder. That's it. If, yeah. What's the motivation? Well, to be accepted by those who are vociferously in favor of abortion. You don't want to be seen to be anti-woman after all. You don't want to be seen to, to be restricting the, the reproductive health of a woman over her own body. That's all thinly disguised evil, my friends. In a nation populated with dozens of millions of pro-abortionists and people who have hatred in their hearts, our nation is deeply guilty of murder. Let that sink in. The United States of America is guilty of murder as a nation. It's only by God's long-suffering mercy that He doesn't just zap us right now. I'm no prophet, but I wonder when it's coming. Perhaps for the few thousands or a few millions among our 300 and nearly 40 million souls, perhaps for those righteous ones, God will forestall judgment. Maybe He'll take us out from using the rapture and then pour out judgment. That would be, that would be pleasant for us. <laughs> that would not be pleasant in any case for those that are left behind. Abortion. Self, self-deception. Uh, it's sad. Now here's here are a couple of uh, a couple of modern political examples that might get somebody up on their ire, but I'm going to say them anyway, and I hope you'll follow along with me. Um, some say, and this is this is another example of self-deception. Some say I believe Trump is a Russian agent, a puppet of Putin. Okay. Only against all credible evidence could this statement be believed. Now, let me grant that someone might conceivably be completely misinformed and innocently believe this assertion if they have only listened to one kind of news reporting. So, misinformation, okay? I'm I'm with that. I, I grant that possibility. But it appears to me that actually... You know, for, for, for a thinking person, it's actually inconceivable that he or she would not recognize that there are other sources of information to look at. For example, I think you can download the Mueller report and read it for yourself, right? Am I right about it? I haven't done that, uh, I, but I'm sure that it exists. But I have heard and listened much about it. This report was produced by dozens of people who were no friends of the president. It concluded that there were, was no collusion of the Trump campaign with Russia. Okay? That, 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 that was a farcical uh, assertion from the beginning. Any, any person with common sense would have, would have seen how preposterous that was, but they spent millions of dollars to figure out that that was... I mean, basically, I know about legal gymnastics and you can't prove negatives and all that stuff, but basically, if anything has been proven negative... That has probably been proven negative uh, by all the work that was done in that regard. 
So I think a willful ignorance plays into the belief that the assertion is true and this tends to cover for other feelings. Now I'm talking to the issue of motivation now. If you can dismiss Trump out of hand as a Russian spy, I mean, who likes Russian spies? They're always the bad guys, right? Uh, at least in the movies, right? Right? <laughs> yeah. I... Uh, you know, I grew up in the, the uh, kind of the end of the, the Cold War, and it was, you know, under Reagan and even Bush to some extent, uh, Bush 41, the, um, you know, communism was still kind of a thing to worry about. Uh, not, not so much now, it seems. People have kind of left that behind, although I am concerned about it because communism is anti-God, anti-religion, anti-Christianity, basically. But... If you can dismiss the president as a Russian spy, then that makes you feel better about your unchristian hatred of the man. That hatred is out there and it's very disturbing to me. There's, an, there's, a, there's a boiling madness that has occurred in our nation against this individual for what reasons some, some people are having difficulty understanding the reasons for that. And I would, I would say that I also have some difficulty with that because that attitude is is foreign to a Christian's heart. That that raw, unmitigated fury and hatred against somebody. So the motivation of self-interest would help you rationalize support for another candidate because obviously nobody wants to vote for a Russian spy. So it might help you rationalize support for another candidate with equal character flaws and ungodly policy. I'll leave the remainder of the analysis of motivation on this question up to you, but I will say that it appears to me that a predisposed hatred of the president feeds into a motivation to find anything that might validate that hatred and put him down. But remember, what did the Lord Jesus talk about? tell us about hatred? Hatred is... Murder. So we have political hatred. We have abortion murder. Murder, 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 murder. This is not good. Now, give me another example here. This is a little bit more uh, text on in my notes. Some say this. Because Trump said there were very fine people on both sides, I believe he's unquestionably a racist. Now, I'm not addressing in my point here any other evidence for or against the claim of racism. Okay? You want to ask me about that afterwards, I'll be happy to talk to you about it. But I'm just focusing, I, I, I'm talking about for or against the claim of racism in the president. Okay? But on this point, I want to talk about, I want to focus your attention on this because this is significant. I'm just focusing on this one part. Many people point to this brief statement as the proof that the president is a racist. In fact, this statement became the self-professed reason for Joe Biden to enter the presidential campaign. Do you remember that? They say this, quote, Democratic presidential nominee Joe Biden said he knew he had to run for president after hearing President Donald Trump say there were very fine people on both sides after the 2017 white supremacist rally in Charlottesville, Virginia. That's from NBCWashington.com. But this seems to be self-deceived reasoning to me. 
For it is obvious by a reading of the entire quotation that Trump is not a racist, at least not on this data point. Here's the fuller context in which Trump said, quote, you had some very bad people in that group, but you also had people that were very fine people on both sides. And you had people, and I'm not talking about the neo-Nazis and white nationalists because they should be condemned totally, but you had many people in that group other than neo-Nazis and white nationalists. Quoted in USA Today in one of their fact-checking stories. Okay? We need to avoid the unidimensional thinking that says people who want to keep southern statues up cannot be good people. That plays into this whole thing as well, right? So you can't imagine if you're a, a northerner anti-racist how somebody in the south could want to keep one of these statues up. You need to, be, you need to live in the south, I mean, I think, and think about that for a while and, and kind of imbibe the spirit of people there and understand what their thinking is. Perhaps they have a set of reasons that you do not understand. Perhaps they're wrong. Perhaps the monuments act as, as reminders of the sins of the past and do not do those things again. I have no idea the reasoning underlying the keeping of those monuments because I have not talked with many who have made a cogent case for it. But I should not be so boorish in my opposition while I claim to despise the president because of his boorishness. Let's suppose that a person truly does know the broader context of this quotation that I've shared. Is that person rescued from... or some, I'm sorry. Let's suppose they do not know the broader context of the quotation. Are they therefore rescued from culpability? I think not. Now, that might sound harsh to some people, but here's what my reasoning is. Such an important claim about someone's character. He is a racist must be vetted before blind acceptance. This is especially true because we all know that the media takes statements out of context all the time. How long has the media been doing that? Maybe it would be easier for us to say, how long have they not been doing that? Zero. Okay? Really, folks. Any person with a modicum of situational awareness knows that the media always cherry-picks statements out to make somebody look the way they want them to look, either good or bad. So to accept the charge of racism against the president on the slim evidence offered in the truncated quote is self-deceiving. It's a culpable act. You are believing a lie. And not only that, you are gullibly believing a lie without attention to the necessary inputs to make a wise evaluation. This goes back to Proverbs 18.13. The first guy that comes along and tells you his story seems right, but why don't you check the other side of the story and just, just to double check, just to make sure that you're not believing a whopper. Self-deceived. Now, the motivation for this. Remember, self-deception has a motivational aspect and it's helpful for us to think about that. Why, why are you self-deceived sometimes? To your, is, is it to your benefit or your detriment? You think it's to your benefit. You think, you think that you're, you're handling something in your life that is handled so it makes you feel more comfortable. What about this? The motivation for such self-deception is not easy for me to understand, maybe not for you either. Perhaps the motivation is to provide a legitimate sounding reason 
for hatred that cannot be adequately justified in other ways. After all, being hateful towards another person is a loathsome character trait in yourself. And it calls for some kind of sufficient justification. Are you with me on that? If you're saying to yourself, I hate that person. Most outsiders in a Judeo-Christian situation will say, and I'll just talk about people who are truly, truly know God, will say your character is deeply flawed if you hate another person. In fact, that is a loathsome character trait that you have, that you hate other people. But, if the fellow that you hate is a racist, well, at least that, that absolves you of all responsibility. I mean, racists are the worst. So, if you hate him, that must be okay, right? Jesus didn't say that, did He? People have all kinds of flaws. And Jesus knew that when He said the words. Well, anyway, that's the motivational aspect there of that self-deception. Now, uh, another example. Just a very more, more general example for you. When you entertain sinful thoughts, hatred, for example, or anger, or lust, or evil thinking about another person, filling the mind with the things that feed those thoughts, does it bother your conscience that you're doing this? Are you rationalizing what you're doing? Here's how this works. You're thinking something, you're wanting something, and and you, you begin to say, is that really sin? No, that's not really sin. Uh, it's not too bad. Or God will forgive me. Or These are prime examples of self-deception. If you're asking yourself that question about something, you probably better run the other way pretty fast. That's hard to do because the thing you're thinking about is something your flesh desires or is, uh, is made more comfortable by or makes you feel better or something. Here's an example from Bishop Joseph Butler's sermon that I mentioned to you before. Uh, Truth and real good sense and thorough integrity, he said, carry along with them a peculiar consciousness of their own genuineness. Boy, these guys really wrote. I mean, you had to be sharp in your chair in the pew to follow their sermons. Listen to that again. Truth and real good sense and thorough integrity carry along with them a peculiar consciousness of their own genuineness. Paul could say, I have lived in all good conscience until this day. And he knew it. And that that was a certain kind of feeling that he had in himself. You know that feeling. You know when you've been right and when you're wronged by others despite the fact that you were right. There is a feeling belonging to these characteristics which does not accompany their counterfeits Error, folly, half-honesty, partial and slight regards to virtue and right. For only as they are consistent with that course of gratification which men happen to be set upon. And if this be the case, it is much the same if we should suppose a man to have had a general view of some scene enough to satisfy him that is very disagreeable and then to shut his eyes. He sees something and mm, don't want to look at that too much. That he might not have a particular or distinct view of its several deformities. 
Back to the abortion issue, some people have said people who support abortion should have to be present in the room when one is done and see what is pulled out and put onto the stainless steel tray in pieces. It is as easy to close the eyes of the mind as those of the body. And the former is more frequently done with willfulness and yet not attended to than the latter. Do you understand his, his meaning of the eyes of the body and the eyes of the mind? You shut yourself off from those realities, those thoughts, those evidences, those pieces of information. The actions of the mind being more quick and transient than those of the physical senses. This may be further illustrated by another thing observable in ordinary life. It is not uncommon for persons who run out of their fortunes. Let's just say money. Okay, but fortunes could be, you know, their business collapses or whatever. Some good thing goes away. Persons who run out of their fortunes entirely to neglect looking into the state of their affairs. And this from a general knowledge that the condition of them is bad. These extravagant people are perpetually ruined before they themselves expected it. And they tell you as an excuse and tell you truly, they really feel this, that they did not think they were in so much debt or that their expenses so far exceeded their income. How could they not know? Did they ever open the account from the bank and look at the balance of the checkbook? No, they closed their eyes to it. I, oh, I, I can't deal with that now later, you know. And yet no one takes this for an excuse who is sensible that their ignorance of their particular circumstances was owing to their general knowledge of them. That is, their general knowledge that matters were not well with them. They knew it, but they kind of didn't know it at the same time. This is somewhat like the situation with respect to morals, to virtue, and to religion. Okay, So set aside the financial Somebody has a failing business, they keep on going until it's too late and it folds, but they had given themselves excuses all the time. It's all well, everything's going to be okay. But with morals, virtue, and religion, it's a similar thing. Men find that the survey of themselves, their own heart and temper, their own life and behavior does not afford them satisfaction. Things are not as they should be. Therefore, what do they do? Close their eyes to it. They turn away. They will not go over particulars or look deeper lest they should find even more amiss. Here's the thing. Here's the motivation. For who would want to be put out of humor with himself? Do you want to be dissatisfied with yourself? Never. So just, you know, this guy saying, oh, don't look too deep. If I don't look too deep, I won't be too dissatisfied. The problem is you're going into ruination. All right, those are my illustrations. Let me give you quickly a couple of effects of self-deception and then how to attack it in yourself. Effects of self-deception. First of all, a strong feeling that someone who gives you opposite information must be wrong. A strong motivation to rationalize or explain away competing reasons or competing information. Thirdly, an effect of self-deception. It's an unwillingness to give a fair hearing to the opposite side. I don't want to hear it. I don't want to hear it. I can't hear anything from him. He's a racist. Right? Yeah. <laughs> I'm not listening. I'm not listening. I'm not listening. 
Okay? Yeah. <laughs> or fourthly, being completely unwilling to change your view. Sometimes also a mark of self-deception. I say sometimes because not always the case. Sometimes the feeling of not of being certain that you're not going to change your view is not a sign of self-deception, but a sign that you are certainly correct. How many of you could be moved off of your conviction that the gospel of Christ is true? But you're not self-deceived about that. But it can be a characteristic of self-deception that you are unwilling to change your mind about something. Now, the world would say, Thurman, you are just a poor, self-deceived person. You believe that Jesus stuff. Yeah, they are entitled to their opinion. And we shall see in the last day who is correct on this matter. That's right. So, that is... The fact is they who criticize the Christian are the ones that are deceived. Scripture says they're deceiving and being deceived. Okay, uh, Waxing worse and worse. Romans 1 we looked at before. Okay, now... We only have a little bit of time left tonight. How do we attack self-deception in ourselves? Self-deception, I'm particularly interested in religious, I call it religious self-deception, but any kind of self-deception this could apply to, really. First of all, learn what it is. Oh, by the way, this is important. I'm not talking about in this message how to figure out about self-deception in other people. That's their problem. I'm talking about self-deception, meaning your self-deception, okay? So don't be looking for the logs sticking out of everybody else's eye. I mean, the specks in everybody else's eye. Well, you've got logs coming out of your own, just so to speak. Somebody said that before me. Uh, first of all, learn what self-deception is, as we have discussed in our series of messages. Uh, think of it like self-partiality. Self-partiality. We all think ourselves to be the exception to the rule that oh everybody has self-partiality. But not me, you say. But oh yes, you too are self-partial. It is as natural as breathing. Ephesians 5.29 says, No man ever yet hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it. And part of his flesh is how he feels. And how he feels internally affects his, his, his well-being. His mind. Let's not forget that we are beings with a mind, with a soul, with a conscience, with internal thoughts, not just external flesh in in a machine kind of sense. Recognize that you have naturally a greater regard for yourself than for others. Okay, That's going to help you learn what self-deception is. Secondly, recognize the danger of self-deception. Are you paying attention out there? No matter how much you have of self-deception, it's bad. No matter how little, no matter how, if it's a lot. In fact, I think you could make the argument that self-deception is more wicked, more dangerous than open wickedness. I've talked to people who admit, yeah, I'm, I don't believe in God, I'm an adulterer, I do drugs... I know I'm a sinner. Well, there's something to be said for that. As opposed to the Pharisee who hides behind a facade of righteousness and pretends that he doesn't have any sin in his life. That is a deadly condition. Better to know you have cancer than to not know you have cancer, isn't it? 
I mean, <laughs> yeah, I don't, no, I don't want to know. I don't want to know. I don't want to know. No, but if you know, you can hopefully do something about it. At least if you catch it early enough in the cancer case. But in the sin case, as long as you're alive, you've caught it early enough. Right? Then you can believe in the gospel and, and be caught, washed and cleansed and saved and, and all of that. So if, if you're outright wicked, at least uh, you're, you, you know, your sin is open and clear. You can even acknowledge it yourself. There's some hope for rehab or improvement. But on the other hand, if you have a, what's called a deep and calm source of delusion. A deep and calm source of delusion. Okay, this is like the, um, this is the difference between a person who's, who's a wicked person dressed in rags and knows they're a sinner compared to the person who has the wicked, deep and calm source of delusion who wears a suit and is in high places. That's the dangerous situation. This is deadly and can send one to hell straight away without any self-awareness until the day of judgment. Didn't we do all those wonderful things, Lord? No. Now, how to attack self-deception. Learn what it is. Recognize how dangerous it is. Number three, imagine someone else knowing your faults. Which of these faults most terrifies you to be revealed to the world? To your loved ones and to your church family. What part of your thoughts, your character, your behavior, your emotions, would your, I'll call him your helpful enemy. Does that make sense? The person who knows you inside and out, who could reveal that flaw in your character that would help to expose it and help you to get rid of it. We call him your helpful enemy. He's helpful because he's trying to help you. He's your enemy because you don't want him to reveal the, the top secret things about your life that he knows. What part of your thoughts, character, and behavior would he expose to embarrass you? Thinking about this imaginary situation now will help you unravel the layers of self-deception that have grown on top of the bad parts of your character. Do you see that? This is an imaginary... This is a thought experiment. What if somebody knew this about me and they told it to my wife, kids, church, world? That will help to unravel the self-deception that you have layered over that sin. That's, that's a helpful thought experiment that I picked up from Bishop Butler in that article or that sermon that I mentioned to you. Helpful experiment. Now, another way to think about this to help you unravel or uncover self-deception, think of faults as you would treat them in another person. When reflecting on your own conduct, substitute another person in your place with a similar situation. How do you evaluate his or her conduct in that situation? Would he or she look to you to be filled with some selfish hypocrisy because of that conduct? That conduct which you have in yourself, but you're pretending is found in another person. Then you pretend, how would I treat that person? Or how should that person be treated? Because it's easier to think about how it should be handled in someone else than to think objectively about how it should be handled in me. 
2 Samuel 12, please. You know where I'm going, brother. I've been going there the whole time. It's taken me four sermons to get here, but 2 Samuel 12, verse 7. Uh, I'll go back to the beginning of the chapter. The Lord, knew, of course, knew the sin of David, and Nathan knew the sin of David. And what Nathan does is this very experiment. <clears throat> he works this, could I say, spiritual, psychological experiment upon David by giving him a parable. And he says, look, there's a guy who is rich and another guy who's poor, and the rich man had many flocks and herds. Verse 3, but the poor man had nothing except one little ewe lamb which he bought and nourished and it grew up together with him and his children. It ate of his own food and drank from his own cup and lay in his bosom and it was like a daughter to him. And a traveler came to the rich man, verse 4 says, who refused to take from his own flock and from his own herd to prepare one for the wayfaring man who had come to him. But he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. So David's anger was greatly aroused against the man. So what Nathan has successfully done is he's taken a parable. He's taken this, what I said, pretend that your sin is in someone else. How would you handle it? So he took David's sin, transferred it to a hypothetical person and said, David, how should that be handled? And David was very upset And he said to Nathan, as the Lord lives, the man who has done this shall surely die and he shall restore fourfold for the lamb because he did this thing and because he had no pity. So Nathan has got him right where he wants him. He's done this thought experiment on him. What I was asking you to do is do it on yourself because we don't have any Nathans here who know your internal faults who can craft a parable like that to get you to realize what you're doing in your self-deception, but uh, or or in the previous point that I had that I had brought up, um, which was what if your faults were exposed by a helpful enemy? Those are are interesting thought experiments. But again, Nathan puts it to practice here, and he says to David, verse seven, "You are that man. You are that man. You are the man." But he's really saying, "You are that rich man." Here's Uriah, who has a little ewe lamb, a beautiful wife that you wanted for yourself, and you took that wife. And not only that, which which, by the way is far worse than taking a lamb, taking a wife, and then you had the man killed because you stole his ewe lamb from him. So by an argument from lesser to greater, David's anger was aroused against this fellow. David's anger would have to be turned around and focused upon himself, and he would realize he should, that he was a wicked sinner. Thus says the Lord God of Israel, I anointed you king over Israel, I delivered you from the hand of Saul, I gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your keeping, and gave you the house of Israel and Judah. And if that had been too little, I also would have given you much more. Listen to that. God would have given him more if he had asked, apparently. Why have you despised the commandment of the Lord to do evil in his sight? You have killed Uriah the Hittite with the sword. You have taken his wife to be your wife and have killed him with the sword of the people of Ammon. And by the way, a child died too as a result of this wickedness. Now therefore, the sword shall never depart from your house. All because David had lusted and rationalized and deceived himself 
and had a motivation to cover that for a year perhaps. We don't know how long. But we learn later on that in Psalm 32 and Psalm 51 when he came to repentance and contrition that his, his, he knew something was wrong, but he was papering it over. Who knows with what? Motivations. Oh, it was okay. Or I'm the king. Or some paper thin veneer excuse for his sin. And Nathan gets him to realize you're that man. Self-deception. Finally and fifthly, to combat deception from the outside, feeding your own tendencies towards self-deception. To do that, to, to combat it, uh, and this is just, you know, maybe more broadly speaking, read stuff. Think. Read other stuff. Listen to different perspectives. And always keep the Bible in the front of your mind. This is more a point to deal with deception that comes from false information from the outside, from the media and that sort of stuff. Pay attention. Don't be gullible. Uh, because that gullibility is not... Gullibility is another bad character trait. You know that? It is a bad character trait. And we need to avoid that. And so these are the ways to root out self-deception in our own lives. We could say much more. Others have done it if you're interested to look into it more. I've got a couple of papers on it I could share with you. But we pray that God will deliver us from deception and especially from self-deception because it is an insidious enemy within. And we have some measure of it, I'm sure, in each one of us. I know the Bible's very clear about that. The danger is ever present. And so let us not be self deceived. Um, this happens a lot. The motivations. Think of the motivations. Why would I be doing that? Well, because it makes you comfortable somehow. And that's, uh, that's dangerous. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for the opportunity to think about these matters. It's not been an easy or lightweight subject but it is something that is extremely important and I pray has given some profit to your people here tonight. Thank you for it and the few messages we've been able to share about it. Lord, help us to apply some of those methods, whether uh, the thought experiments or or, uh, reading extra and outside materials so that we can get a different view of things, staying in our Bibles so that we will not be deceived because we have the truth in us. In Jesus' name, amen.